Carlos said he usually preaches for like an hour or two. Just kidding. No. Um, hey, good morning. Um, my name's Jim. Uh, I am from here, but uh, currently serving as a chaplain on a ship um, that never seems to go out to sea. But uh, we're, we're in a maintenance phase right now at the Norfolk Navy base. Uh, today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have a Bible or if you want to turn in your uh, worship guide uh, to Isaiah 6 for the passage there. And as you're turning... Uh, just a little bit of context, Isaiah 6, it comes during a time of great transition for God's people. Uh, it's during the time of the divided kingdom where you have Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And it's, it's at the time when King Uzziah died. Uh, he'd been reigning for about 50 years. And so pretty much the, the whole lifetime of someone uh, reigning as king has now died. He was a king that ruled with strength. Uh, he ushered in a time of relative prosperity for God's people for the southern kingdom. And uh, he usually did what was right in God's eyes uh, most of the time. Uh, in 2 Chronicles 26, there's this episode towards the end of King Uzziah's life where uh, we see that he goes into the temple and he starts to offer incense um, and he, he flouts the holiness of God um, by doing this, which wasn't his right to do. Uh, he was not a priest, and uh, the high priest, along with 80 of his uh, other priests, you know, talk about quite the church staff there, uh, they go in and they confront King Uzziah, and uh, King Uzziah breaks out in leprosy. And so this, this king who ruled with, with might, with honor, um, kind of ends in this state of disobedience, this, this punishment. And it's into this world that Isaiah, in chapter 6, uh, begins his ministry and uh, he sees this vision in the year that King Uzziah dies. So read with me from Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. He's given it to us because he loves us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's the word of the Lord. Can you pray with me? Grant almighty God that as you shine on us by your word, that we may not be blind at midday, nor that we willfully seek darkness and thus lull our minds to sleep. But May we be roused daily by your word, and may we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name, and we present ourselves and all of our life as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your heavenly habitation, where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we're um, pretty much done with school, um, I think all the kids, hopefully everyone's done with school by now. Um, and we're into the blazing hot reality of, of Virginia's summer. I hope, especially as we're in Virginia Beach, that you've had the chance to go down to the beach uh, this season. I grew up in Chesapeake, and honestly, um, I didn't really like the beach 
growing up, I think being near the beach is kind of like, oh yeah, whatever. Um, but also I think my, my dad, we would only just pack like a towel and go to Virginia beach and like cook in the blazing sun. And we, we didn't have shade or coolers or anything like that. And so I think I grew up not really caring for the beach, but now that I have this really nice shade shelter and we bring out coolers and we have all the stuff for our kids, it's, it's actually pretty fun. It's pretty nice. Um, although you have to be careful, especially with young children, uh, parents, you know, um, even if you go kind of up, up to the North end or in, into the Bayside by like chicks or, or even on a base somewhere, um, or, or, um, East beach, you know, you gotta be careful of the waves. Uh, cause even little ones can knock over your children. Cause the ocean is a powerful force. Water is a powerful force. And even if they aren't the highest waves on a, on the planet, you know, Virginia beach can, can be a dangerous place if you're not careful. Because the ocean is powerful. Uh, this past winter, I was out on a destroyer in the North Atlantic. Uh, we surged because of the Russian invasion into Ukraine, or actually, we we surged before uh, Russia made any um, invasion. But we were out there in the North Atlantic into the Mediterranean, and, and we hit some pretty gnarly swells and some pretty heavy seas. And if you've been in the Navy or out on a ship, uh, it can get it can get pretty bad out there. Uh, you know, we're getting. Uh, sustained winds of 40 knots, 65, 70 knot gusts relative to us. We were getting 15 to 20 foot seas. And on a destroyer, even though it is about 600 feet long, it can move. It is, it was pretty bad. Uh, and if your stuff wasn't secured for sea, it was going to go flying across the room. And um, we found out pretty quick whose stuff wasn't secured for sea when we started taking rolls. Now, as a chaplain on a ship when we're underway, I have the privilege of saying a prayer for the crew over the intercom system, over the 1MC each night. And as we're in these heavy seas, I found myself turning to the Church of England 1662 prayer book. Um, and uh, there were, uh, there's a whole section for prayers specifically written for chaplains who are out on ships uh, out to sea. And so as we were caught up in the reality of, of the mighty ocean and, and having our, our ship tossed to and fro, I would find myself praying words, uh, something like this. And I'll give you a warning. There's some these and thous and thys. It's, you know, the old 17th century English. But hear this prayer that was written for um, sailors out on the sea. O most powerful and glorious God, at whose command the winds blow and lift up the waves of the sea, and who stillest the rage thereof, we thy creatures, but miserable sinners, do in this our great distress cry unto thee for our help. Save, Lord, or else we perish. Now, those words sound similar to what Isaiah utters as he sees this vision of God in his temple, where he's utterly undone by the presence of the Almighty. The prayer continues, saying, We confess when we've been safe and seen all things quiet about us, We've forgotten thee, our God, and refuse to hearken to the still voice of thy word and to obey thy commandments. But now we see how terrible thou art in all thy works of wonder, the great God to be feared above all. What can we learn from a prayer like this in the 1662 prayer book? What can we learn from a passage like this in Isaiah 6? Well, as often is the case, we, we too forget about the holiness of God, about how terrible and awesome he truly is. And it makes sense. I mean, why would anyone want to really dwell upon the uh, holiness, the absolute um, set-apartness of God and his terror and his, um, his awesomeness there? Well, our passage shows us that when we think about the holiness of God, when we call to mind 
um, his righteousness, it's not at the expense of his mercy and love. It actually magnifies his mercy all the more. So we're going to explore that briefly together today. We're going to first look at the reality of God's holiness. Then we'll look at our response as sinful people, but then also God's response to sinful people when a holy God and rebellious sinners meet. So first, let's look at the reality, looking through verses one through four. So in the year when this king dies, King Uzziah dies, uh, and as the nation is facing the reality that there are foreign powers pressing in all upon them, Isaiah has this vision of a king who is high and lifted up, who will never die, who's seated on his throne in heaven. Now, it's true that no one has ever seen God, as John 1.18 would tell us, and it's true that God is a spirit, but at times throughout scripture, throughout redemptive history, God chooses to um, show himself, to to make himself visible for the benefit of his people, and that's a fancy term for that. Uh, You'll get this one for free. It's called a theophany, and uh, you know, so in in these theophanies, uh, we, we see God making himself visible for his people. And we see this in other places in scripture. But here and now, Isaiah sees this vision of God high and lifted up, seated upon his throne with the hem, the, the train of his robe filling the temple. And what's surrounding God in this vision? We have the seraphim, right? Which are, when we translate the Hebrew very woodenly, just as burning ones. So these burning ones, these seraphim, Uh, They only appear here in this passage, here in Isaiah 6. So we don't know much about them at all, but we do see them praising God, these angels surrounding God. Perhaps they were especially made just for this purpose of being in God's presence, uh, praising him. So let's notice the physical description, right? God created these angels, these creatures, these burning ones to praise him. And a seraph has six wings. And with two of the wings, he flies, The, the seraph would fly. Uh, and then the other two pairs are used to cover the face and to cover the feet of the creature. So these creatures who are especially made to be in God's presence can't even look upon the holiness of God, can't even be in his presence, even though God created them for that purpose. God is so perfectly righteous that even these angels cannot look upon him. And what are these creatures crying out? They're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in the Hebrew language, there's no exclamation point. So the way in which uh, writers in that language would exclaim some attribute is through repetition. You'll see this throughout the Psalms and wisdom literature, and we see this here. They repeat this word holy three times. To repeat something Three times in scripture is the highest exclamation, the grandest acclamation that you can make in the Hebrew language. As R.C. Sproul, the late pastor and theologian, observed regarding this passage, he says, this is the only time an attribute of God is elevated to a third degree, to the superlative level. The Bible doesn't say that God is love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy or justice, 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 but that he is holy, holy, holy. Now, 1 John 4 does tell us that God is love. And Exodus 34 tells us that God loves mercy and values justice, and he himself is just. But as R.C. observes, nowhere is an attribute in all of scripture described in such a manner as God's holiness. And it's hard for 
me at least, I don't know about you, to comprehend how completely other, how awesome, how terrible, how completely transcendent and holy our God is. But the Bible gives us ample examples throughout Scripture about how God is holy, how his holiness demands respect, and how we as sinners can't approach a holy God. When the Israelites are freed from slavery, only Moses was allowed to go up upon the mountain at Mount Sinai. The people were so terrified by what was being displayed that they begged Moses only to go and interact with a perfectly holy God. In the temple, only the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was, and after and on uh, only the Day of Atonement, after a myriad amount of cleansing rituals, when the Ark of the Covenant uh, was being transported back to Jerusalem, you know the Ark, the thing that's in uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you've seen that? You know, that, that item that contained the tablets and you had the golden cherubim on, on top. Uh, when that was being transported back to Jerusalem after uh, it, was being, it had been captured by the Philistines, there was a grand parade. It was a procession back to uh, the temple, and David was leading it, and it was a celebratory occasion. And the oxen who were pulling the ark on the cart, they stumbled. And the Bible records that a godly man who was part of this procession sees the oxen stumble and sees the Ark of the Covenant where God's holiness is, is inside and, and where he is residing as a footstool. He begins to see it fall to the ground. And in an effort to save the Ark of the Covenant, he reaches out and he grabs the Ark and he pushes it back up. And in that moment, God strikes him down because the dirt was better than that sinner's hand that touched the Ark. God's holiness is nothing to be trifled with. A lot of times I think of God as a friendly, snuggly, loving, nice guy who is always my friend, kind of that buddy Jesus from an old movie that I used to watch. We don't think of his holiness, his perfection, and even his wrath against sin. Now, I'm a bit of a nerd, if you haven't found that out already, um, and I love Harry Potter. And uh, sorry if anyone's currently reading this, there's going to be a little bit of a spoiler, but it's been about 20 years or something like that. So I feel like the statute of limitations has expired on spoilers. So, um, you know, if you've read the books or if you've seen the movies, there's this character named Mrs. Weasley, Molly Weasley. She's wonderful. She's this loving, nurturing, kind mother and wife. But in the Battle of Hogwarts, towards the end of the series, as the battle is raging between good and evil, there's this Death Eater named Bellatrix Lestrange, who was trying to kill uh, Molly, uh, Molly Weasley's daughter. And I won't tell you what Molly Weasley says. You'll have to read it for yourself. But um, she, in that moment, unleashes her wrath upon Bellatrix Lestrange and kills her where she's standing in order to protect her, her child. I was flabbergasted when I read that because you don't expect that character to yell out what she yells out and to, to unleash that wrath. And God is merciful. He's loving. He's kind. He is a friend of sinners, but he is also holy and his wrath against sin is real. You cannot abide it. And Isaiah quickly comes to realize this as he has this vision. We see in verse 5, we're going to transition to our response as sinful people. Isaiah cries out in verse 5. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, he recognizes his sin, and he sees the sin 
of God's people. And the prophet who's called by God, who's currently communicating with the Most High through this vision, I mean, Isaiah, he is surely on the varsity team, right? He is on the varsity squad of, of good dudes, of, of people used by God. And yet he sees his sin. He is utterly undone. Not even his righteousness is good enough before a holy God. One of my favorite theologians, Bernard of Clairvaux, a medieval theologian, he says, so far from being able to answer for my sins, I cannot even answer for my righteousness. At times we can look around and we can say with some accuracy that the culture does not care about God, does not see God as holy, does not obey his commandments or love him or cherish him or honor him. And that's true. But that's not something that's unique to our specific time and place here in America. Sin has been a problem throughout all ages with all peoples and all lands. It's a, it's a human problem. It's a problem not just out there, but a problem in here. God's people are even undone by the holiness of God. So I want to just take a brief um, look at just walking back through Scripture. And we can go back to the Garden of Eden. And we can see how Adam and Eve, they enjoyed the presence of God before sin entered the world, before they rebelled and sinned against him. God was just as holy then, just as righteous, just as perfect, but his creatures could enjoy his presence. And though the Westminster Catechism hadn't been written yet, uh, Adam and Eve, they truly could glorify God and enjoy him, although it didn't really last forever, right? That was just the first, like, two pages of the Bible. Because in, X, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, we read of the fall. And we read of their rebellion, and they sin against a holy God. And what did Adam and Eve do once they realized what they had done? They hid. They hid from God. They immediately knew their guilt and their shame. They hid their nakedness and they covered themselves up. They realized their vulnerability. And when they heard God walking through the cool of the garden, they hid themselves because they knew that God was holy and that they were not. And then what do they have to do? They had to move out of the garden, right? And this is why I will tell everyone that moving is part of the fall, for sure, yes. I see some head nods. It is it's a, one of the first things that Adam and Eve have to do. Moving is part of the curse. So just remember that next time the U-Haul pulls up, right? Adam and Eve, they have, to, they have to leave the Garden of Eden where they enjoyed the presence of God. And God placed an angel, a cherub, uh, not a seraphim, but cherubim, uh, with flaming swords to guard this tree of life. So later in life, in, in, in the... Uh, rhythms of God's people, we see these golden cherubim appearing, right? I mentioned the Ark of the Covenant. There are two winged cherubim above the, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. There were cherub uh, angels all over the curtain that separated the temple from the Holy of Holies as if it was a big keep out sign saying, sinners, you cannot come in here. A holy God resides in here. You must stay out. The way is guarded. You cannot come back into God's presence. We, in our liturgy today, and in Reformed liturgies all over the world, we have this confession of sin, right? Because we know that when we're singing praises, we have this call to worship. We uh, praise and adore this loving God who is perfect and holy. We realize that, wow, he is holy and I am not. So we have this time of confession. But I'd ask you, in those times of confession, do you just kind of sit there and go along with it? Do you think of what you might do later this afternoon or what you, what you need to cook later or what errands are going to need to be run later in the week? Or do you actually take that time to become aware of your sin? Do you actually acknowledge and confess it to your father? 
The Bible doesn't tell us to wallow in our sin and stay in our sin and and lump self-pity upon us, right? But it does tell us to be confronted with our sin because if we don't acknowledge our sin, we're liars. If we don't acknowledge our need to confess our sin, we don't acknowledge our need for a savior, do we? There can be no progress in this life for a Christian unless there's confrontation and confession and sorrow and turning away and repentance from our sin. But as Spurgeon, the great British preacher, exhorts, for every one look at our sin, we need to take 10 looks at Jesus. For God doesn't leave us in a helpless estate of sin, does he? No. He responds. And so we're going to look briefly at God's response to sinful people. So in verses 6 and 7 of our passage today, we see God's response. Read with me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So in this passage, does Isaiah do anything to approach God or move towards God or, or do anything to make himself right with God? Other than confessing his sin? No, he doesn't. But God mercifully and graciously moves toward Isaiah. But there is a cost. In Isaiah 6, the prophet feels the burning hot coal upon his lips. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ tells tells us of a Savior who endured the fire of God's wrath upon the cross. We ultimately find our redemption and our hope and our way back to God through his son, Jesus Christ, who bore the wrath of sin upon the cross. But the cross is not the first time we see God's mercy at work in the midst of a sinful generation. So again, going back to the garden, right? We see God as the first missionary, right? Remember, Adam and Eve, they're hiding. They're hiding themselves from God. And who goes out to find Adam and Eve? God himself. He's the first missionary going out to sinful people. And before he commands them to leave the garden, what does he do? He clothes them. He takes their pitiful excuse for self-covering with fig leaves, and he slaughters animals, and he clothes them in animal skins. There's a cost of blood to be covered by God. And then he promises in Genesis 3 that one day the head of the serpent that only seeks to curse and destroy and kill, that one day that serpent's head will be crushed. And he places a guard at the tree of life, these cherubim, so that They may not eat of the tree of life and forever remain in a state of sin. God uses sinful people throughout all of redemptive history to to bring about his work of redemption, right? He uses Moses. He uses David. They were both murderers, right? Moses kills someone. David kills someone. Not in war, but in murder. He uses sinful people throughout all of history He frees his people from the house of slavery in Egypt. He establishes this ceremonial law that oftentimes we see as a burden, and rightfully so, but that was a means of God's grace so that his people could commune with them through these sacrifices before Jesus arrived on the scene. And again and again, God calls out to his people. He's rescuing them. He's redeeming them from hands that are too strong to them. He's calling them to repentance through the prophets. But now, in and through his son, Jesus Christ, He's once and for all made a way where there was no way. God stops at nothing to save sinful people. Here in Isaiah 6, we're told that the Lord is seated upon his throne. 
And we read that he's high and lifted up. But later on in Isaiah 52, in the servant songs, in verse, 50, in verse 13 of Isaiah 52, which is about the coming Messiah, about the coming Jesus, we read, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exhausted. Exalted. I'm sure Jesus was exhausted at times too. Um, King Jesus came down from heaven where he had always throughout all of eternity heard shouts and praises and acclamations, heard the chorus of holy, 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 had been with the Father and the Holy Spirit receiving this praise and worship and these choruses. And he became a man where he was high and lifted up upon a cross. And he didn't hear shouts of holy, holy, holy. He heard shouts of crucify him and save yourself. And he saw scorn and contempt and was mocked. The price of our reconciliation is more than we could ever imagine or ever pay ourselves. It costs God's son his very life. Jesus had to die in order for our sin to be atoned for. So what are we to do? Do we simply tremble at the sight of God's presence? Do we fear and, and, and shudder at the thought of him? Well, in some ways, yeah. In, 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 the Bible makes it very clear. In Philippians 2, verses 12, Paul exhorts the church, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's good, it's right, it's proper to have some fear, some awe, some trembling when, we confront, when we're confronted by God. But it doesn't end there. And sometimes as Christians, that's, that's where we live. We tremble, we worry about God. We see our sinfulness and we worry that maybe God won't love us enough, that his love is not great enough to cover our sin. But Christian, we don't live as though we are worried foster children that are bouncing around from family to family to family, worried, will this family, will this God keep us in? We, lived as, we live as adopted children. We know that God loves us, and we're in a loving family, that he's not going to kick us out, that he's not going to show us the door. When we're overwhelmed with the weight and guilt of our sin, he says to us through his word that that is the reason why he sent Jesus to die for you, to cover that sin, to pay for it. In the midst, in the depths of your sin and shame, that is when the mercy of Christ shines the brightest. We acknowledge God's holiness. We confess our sinfulness. We can throw ourselves upon the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, but we don't need to wallow in our sin. Confess it, yes. Repent of it, yes. Have sorrow over it, yes. But we can look to Jesus Brendan Manning, one of my favorite authors uh, and a perfectly imperfect priest, he warns that our huffing and puffing to impress God, our scrambling about for brownie points, our thrashing all over trying to fix ourselves while hiding our pettiness and wallowing in our guilt, our nauseating to God, and our flat denial of the gospel of grace. Christian, you're, you're no longer a slave to sin. You are an heir, and you can approach God upon his throne with boldness, as a child whom the Father loves. We can cry out, Abba, Father, as Paul tells the church in Galatia. When we see the holiness of God, when we see and feel the weight of our sin, the grace of God is magnified. His mercy is all the more. It did cost God everything in order to save his people. And all glory goes to Jesus Christ and not ourselves. And the beauty of the gospel is, is all the more when we acknowledge ourselves unworthy of his love 
and yet we hear that de declaration that we are worthy in Christ. I'll close with this. Uh, we're reading over Grace, PCA, and Chesapeake. Uh, we've been reading Dane Ortland's uh, Gentle and Lowly. I would commend it to you. It's one of my favorites in the last several years. And he writes this. It is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. But have you seen the holiness of God, beloved? Have you acknowledged your sin before him? Have you experienced his grace and his mercy through the finished work of Jesus? If not, or if it's been a long time since you've acknowledged your sin or your need of Christ, I would encourage you to take some time today. Reflect upon it. Allow him to shower his grace upon you and to welcome you into his throne room with confidence through Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks and praise for all your goodness and loving kindness to us, to all whom you've made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts, we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness in all our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory and praises throughout all ages. Amen.